Welcome to the Masters of Data podcast, the podcast that brings a human to data. And I'm your host, Ben Newton. This episode is in a series of interviews that I did on the floor of the Sumo Logic 2019 Illuminate Conference. In this episode, we talk with Stephen O'Grady, co-founder and principal analyst at Redmonk. Redmonk is an industry analyst firm focused on software developers and helps company understand and work with developers. In fact, Stephen wrote an amazing book called The New Kingmakers that explains the rising influence of software developers. So without any further ado, let's dig in. This is Ben Newton welcoming you to another episode of Masters of Data podcast. And I am, uh, as always, I get to have a lot of really interesting guests at the Illuminate Conference. We're actually meeting right here in the middle of it. You might be here a little bit in the background. And I've got Stephen O'Grady with me here today. Welcome, Stephen. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Yeah, and you are the co-founder of Redmonk, which is a lot of publication. A lot of people have heard of, I'm sure. Tell, tell me a little bit more about your, your background. I mean, how did you end up, like, why did you start Redmonk? Like, what led you that direction? What sure. You- yeah, yeah. So, uh, originally, I was a systems integrator and, yeah. you know, was running around flying everywhere, you know, uh, essentially part of teams that implemented software and yeah. didn't like to travel, you know, because it basically was full-time travel. So, I tried to find something that I could put those skills to work, but travel less. Yeah. So, happened into the analyst business, worked at a firm, unfortunately now defunct. I worked with my current business partner. Yeah. And uh, James Governor and I, you know, had been working together for, I don't know, probably better part of a year and just thought, hey, we could do some things differently. You know, if we were running the show, we would focus on this and we would sort of run our, our business in a, in a different fashion. So we did that ultimately. That's you know, cool. we kind of looked around and said, you know, hey, for example, developers are essentially being ignored by most yeah. of the analyst firms at the time. So thought, hey, why not take a shot? And is that, is that your core background is like, computer science is that how you started no no actually it's funny everyone assumes that my background is computer science and so on <laughs> no i was uh i was actually a history major really at college yeah and i always tinker with computers and, and so on but then when i got out of college just trying to get a job and the systems integration firm that i worked with first had a what they call it, it wasn't boot camp but it was effectively boot camp you know it's basically yeah. eight weeks of intensive residential training and basically it's I, I don't know that I call it the equivalent of a computer science degree, but basically you come out and you can program. Uh, you know yeah. what you're doing. So, What kind of history did you study? Mostly European history. Fair amount of American in there as well. Very, very little outside of those disciplines because that's the, at the time, you know, everyone focuses on Western history. But uh, <laughs> yeah. It's so. really funny. I, I came from a computer science background, but then I got out of grad school and I was so tired of it all for a while. <laughs> Even though I did it as a career, I refused to read any like science and computer yeah. science stuff. I only read history. So it's like I, I was sure. trying to catch up on all the stuff that you had. There you go. That's awesome. So I'm assuming that probably, probably uh, you know, the, your kind of communication and you know, writing probably came a lot out of that background, right? Yeah. The hi- history, history degree has actually been surprisingly useful, you know, because you have to write a lot. And as an analyst, you know, we write quite a bit. But also, and this is <laughs> my, my bias probably shows at times in the sense that I tend to look at things in this industry from a historical perspective. Yeah. How things have evolved, you know, because the, for better or for worse, you know, we're so focused on, in many cases, building the future that we tend to forget about our past. Yeah. So it is, it's been useful to have that degree to take a step back at times and see, okay, hey, we've been through something like this before, or we've seen trends like this before. What happened? And how does that, you know, what does that tell us about what's going to happen moving yeah. forward? You know, one thing we were talking about a little bit. So Red Monk, you guys are really focused on developer culture and yeah. kind of understanding developer community. And, and so tell me a little bit about 
more about how you interact with that community. So you, you you were telling me that you actually go out and learn about what they're doing and yeah. their activity. Like, how do you actually find out what developers are doing? Yeah. So when we started the firm way back when, a big part of our our focus became developers, because as I said, we looked around and things were being ignored. Right. Yeah. So in other words, we would go out and talk to developers, and they were using tons of MySQL as one example. Yeah. And you'd go talk to analyst firms, and no one spent any time talking about it because in their view. These were developers. Developers didn't have any money. No one was paying oh, for it. So, so there was this, this sort of break between what was actually getting used yeah. and what analysts and you know, firms and vendors alike talked about. So we looked at this and said, this doesn't make any sense. Like, if stuff's getting used, it's important. So that's kind of how we got onto that track, so to speak. And then in the early days, people would come to us and say, you know, using the example of MySQL, like, how many running instances of MySQL are there? We'd say, I, we have no idea. There's no way that can't be measured. So in the early days, when people came to us and wanted quantitative measurements, we would basically say, we can't. There's, you know, there's no way that that data can be collected because you can, anybody can download a instance of MySQL and run it in a thousand places, right? Yeah. In, you know, inside of enterprise, we'll never know. There's no way to measure that. Yeah. What we ended up evolving over time was looking at, wait, are there you know, sort of areas where developers are coming together and congregating you know, that we can take a look at and see if there are patterns there, right? So GitHub became one, Stack Overflow became another, Hacker News, any of these different sources where you can begin to look at, okay, I can't tell you, I still can't tell you how many instances of MySQL there are, but we can begin to measure performance and behavior, right? Mm -hmm. So in other words, probably the canonical example of this, the one that people may be familiar with is we do these programming language rankings. Yeah. So we got the idea from two folks, uh, Drew Conway and John Miles White, who are big data science people. And right. they had basically, as a lark, measured the performance of languages on GitHub and the performance of languages on Stack Overflow and then correlated them. Oh, interesting. So we thought, hey, this is a great idea. So we just you know, repeated the process. We've been doing it for, oh, I don't know, probably close to 10 years now. You know? And so, so you can begin to see over time, languages go up, languages come down. And what does that tell us about what developers, for example, are using? Are, are GitHub and Stack Overflow pretty well correlated? I mean, do you pretty tightly? You know, you definitely see you definitely see some differences, right? One of the examples because two of the people who uh, Jeff Atwood and Joel Spolsky were very Microsoft focused people, yeah, and they started Stack Overflow. That tends to out, you know, Microsoft languages tend to outperform. So something like C Sharp is higher ranked on Stack Overflow than it is in GitHub. But for the most part, you know, outside of some anomalies here and there, they tend to be they tend to be pretty close. What what are um, I mean I think this stuff is fascinating. I mean, what are some of the big trends that you're seeing in that in that area? We've seen you know sort of in recent years the it's very difficult to move up the rankings in any meaningful way, particularly yeah. to get into the top ten, yeah. right? Because as you might imagine, if you're measuring either source code in the form of GitHub or questions, right? These are accumulative measures, right? right. So in other words, they tend to you know, sort of accrue over time. More right. and more source code gets written. So somebody coming in. Like, if I invented a great new language today, I, I'm starting from zero, where they're starting from, you know, they've been doing yeah. this for 10 years, right? Right. So, in spite of that, we've seen a couple languages that have really risen up the rankings pretty quickly. So, Go had a pretty good charge a number of years ago. It's kind of plateaued in the 15, 14, 15 range. Mm -hmm. Swift exploded. What was that, two, three years ago? When Apple yeah. want, you know, released it. Uh, most recently, however, the, the fastest growing for us has been TypeScript. Really? Yeah. So TypeScript has you know kind of languished in the say the 30s and 40s, you know, for a little while, and then I have to go back and look at the actual timing. I think it was like two years ago. Basically, just started up the charts and actually broke into the top 10 for the first time. Our last rankings. What are what are people using? I'm not as familiar with TypeScript. What are people? So using TypeScript is essentially is a it's a JavaScript superset. 
Right. Okay. So in other words, you have full JavaScript compatibility, but you have op optional type safety. Mm -hmm. So we end up seeing in many cases are you know people who say, all right, like JavaScript's everywhere. It's ubiquitous. It's a sort of lingua franca, if you will. Yeah. But I want to I want to do this safely. Right. Yeah. I want the the sort of optional safety element added to it. So TypeScript has proven to be really really popular for for that reason. Okay. No, that makes a that makes a lot of sense. I mean, what what other kind of tidbits do you are you able to pull out by watching you know GitHub and Stack Overflow? And oh, you know, you can you know languages obviously are one. You know, one of the things we do a lot of, like I said, companies will come to us and say, hey, you know, I want to know again, like how many running instances there are, and we tell them as you know I just said, you know, look, we can't measure that, but what we do instead is you can measure things relative to one another, much as we do for languages, right? Mm -hmm. So. In any given category, database, web server, application server, and so on, we can't necessarily measure the instances, but we can see, all right, how are these three or four or five competitive projects performing relative to one another? Right. right? Are they higher? Are they lower? And we don't really care about any one property, right? So in other words, if you're ahead on Stack Overflow, okay, that's interesting, but it doesn't tell us all that much, yeah. right? Because as, as we just talked about, you do have some outliers and some anomalies like... C-sharp outperforming because the, the site was founded by some Microsoft-oriented people. So what we try to do instead is look for, are there patterns between different properties, right? So that's okay. why we correlate, for example, GitHub and Stack Overflow. And you can sort of go in and try to correlate property after property after property. So what we tell people all the time is, one of these is not terribly interesting. If I see the same thing twice or the same thing three times or the same pattern four or five times, that tells me something, right? Okay. That'll tell me something about usage. It'll tell me something about interest. It'll tell me something about traction. So, yeah, I mean, we do a lot of sort of looking at all kinds of things, like frameworks and languages and databases and so on. Like, what are they doing? How are they performing? And what do they look like next to one another? And, you know, back to your MySQL case, today you would figure out, I don't know, like the buzz around MySQL about, like, are people asking questions about it? If a bunch right. of people are asking questions on Stack Overflow, that yeah. they're using it. Yep. So it's a proxy to usage. Exactly. Okay. Yep. Do you feel like in that way, do you feel like you get a lens earlier than maybe some other analysts get to what's going on? I, I think so, you know, certainly in some areas. But that's, it's kind of always been the case for us in the sense that going back to the MySQL example, right? If you, at the time, this is less true now, but certainly was true when we got started. If you went in and talked to businesses, they would all say, yeah, we're not using that. Right, because <laughs> they, they didn't. Actually were. They actually were right, and so the the classic MySQL sale. In fact, like if you're a MySQL salesperson, what you used to do is walk into a large bank or whatever, and they'd tell you, "Hey, we're not using any of that. We don't need to talk about you know sort of licensing." And you would come back and say, "Well, that's interesting, but a build of MySQL has been downloaded from IPs registered to your company a thousand times, so." Odds are pretty good. There's some of it you're just not aware of it. Yeah. So the net is, is that for us, we have spent more time talking to the people who are the users, you know, yeah. the people using MySQL, than we have talking to the CIOs. We need to talk to CIOs. We know, you know, need to know what their priorities are. But when you actually talk to the people in the trenches who are actually using the technology, you tend to see things a little earlier. You know, yeah. the cloud is a classic example, right? We we were talking to people so. Amazon essentially created the cloud market in yeah. March and August of 2006. So by early 2007, we were talking to developers and developers using a lot of this stuff. Yeah. So we were running around saying, look, this is, this is a thing. Like, you need to pay attention to this. All of the big companies consistently would come back and say things like, hey, that can't do what this piece of physical hardware can do. My stuff's more reliant, or, you know, more reliable, more faster performing, and so on. And we were saying, hey, that's great, but 
if I'm a developer, I can have this thing up in 90 seconds. Like that's <laughs> right. a big difference, right? right? So yeah, I think in terms of just where we sit and the constituency that we talk to, we tend to see things uh, a little bit earlier than some other firms. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. You know, and one interesting thing is, is you and I were talking before, just had a conversation about kind of cultural changes in, in companies right now. Yeah. Kind of the flip side, we were talking a little bit more about, before this, I was talking a little bit more about, you know, centralized to decentralized and yep. kind of ground, grassroots. And in some sense, what that, in some sense, is, I don't know, code for is really developer-led. I mean, yeah. because so I, I'd be really interested to hear what, what you're seeing, because in some sense, you know, I've been doing this for almost 20 years. And, yeah. and to your point earlier, like I think developers were like you put them in a the back room before yeah. and they, like yeah. they write some code. And then yeah, and, and, whereas now it feels like the developers are actually leading the charge. Oh, and for sure. Pushing things forward. So what, what kind of things are you seeing in that way? So it's interesting. So if you go back to I want to say it's 2004, maybe somewhere in that time frame, a gentleman by the name of Nicholas Carr wrote a book called Does IT Matter? Right. Yeah. So essentially, the the general the gist of the book essentially was, you know, look, this is not differentiating for you. This is not essentially a strategic initiative. And this accompanied, in many cases, uh, businesses outsourcing all their development, saying like, hey, this isn't that important to me. Whatever, you know, I'll just send requirements to overseas shops, you know, because I can pay a developer in the Philippines, for example, a fraction of what I have to pay somebody, you know, sort of in the U.S. or wherever. And you know, so that this was essentially the. That was the way things were done, certainly when we were getting started. And we just looked around yeah. and said, you know, again, this doesn't make a ton of sense because by that point, obviously, the, the internet was a thing and digital businesses were becoming more and more of a thing. So anyhow, what, what's happened over the last, say, decade is that digital business has become just business, right? It's very difficult in many yeah. cases to have a purely offline business. And what a lot of these businesses have figured out is, is that, okay, if... I'm going to be a digital business. That stuff that I thought I could outsource, that wasn't such a great idea, right? And yeah. therefore, developers are important. Developers are, in fact, the lifeblood of many of the businesses today and how they operate. If you don't have a good software development organization, you're behind, right? What that means is that, you know, we've written a, I wrote a book on this a number of years ago called The New Kingmakers, yeah. right? So essentially, the idea that developers... And using that term loosely. I love that book, by the yeah, way. Yeah, I mean, it could be, you know, that the developer, though, it could be anybody, right? It could be any kind of practitioner. In some cases, it's a uh, sysadmin, it's an operator, whomever. It's the people in the trenches. They are more often than not the ones who are setting the agenda moving forward. Businesses that don't do that tend to fall behind. When did you write that book? It's been a few that years was ago. 2013, I think. What pieces of that do you feel like are born out? Is that, I mean, is it pretty much... Is it coming about as you predicted, or are you seeing what you yeah, write it's, it it's basically what today? we expected, honestly. Yeah. I'm sure if we go back, I'm sure there's some, some things, some hits and misses and so on. But the gist of the idea, which was, hey, look, you treated developers for, for years as this sort of fungible resource, this non-strategic sort of resource that you could farm out to wherever. It doesn't matter. And in fact, they are absolutely the lifeblood of your organization. That's been picked up so many times. You know, so we have businesses we've never talked to, you know, who are on stage giving talks about, hey, new kingmakers and developers are the most important resource we have and so on. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's you know, sort of largely played yeah. out as we expected. So with that idea of new kingmakers, because I, I, I definitely say, like, I've read the book a couple of times and I think it's been really helpful for me to like yeah. do that. Because I... Because when, when I started out, like I said, like I was in that weird before DevOps was a thing. Right, right. I was one of those people that got trapped in between. Yeah. You know, it was like I could write code, but I also was got doing operations. So I yeah. was like the person who got abused in the middle. Yeah. You know, a lot of what you were talking about kind of connected with me on a personal level because I like I saw that. Like, yeah. And, now, do you or what you're seeing in that context, do you do you feel like 
the development organizations are they are they more distributed or are they are they becoming are they centralizing or decentralizing in the sense like to give you a specific example are they more closer to the business itself like in because in some sense like for example if there's a business unit that does X like they make yeah. this product yeah are the developers now sitting right there close to that GM to that business unit it depends on the business obviously you know it's a classic consultant or analyst answer right it depends yeah. but it really does there, there are different ways to do it what I would say is is that there are a lot of reasons for this open source is one clouds another you know software as a service basically it's become much easier for lines of business to essentially run their own show yeah right so it used to be if you go back 10 years ago 15 years ago 20 years ago if you're a line of business and you want to do anything right yeah you need to go out and find some hardware. You need to find somewhere to put that hardware. You need to go out and buy licenses for things and get all that stuff up and running. And that's why you know most businesses have centralized IT. Right. right today, in many cases, you see lines of business who can say, you know, who will say things like, "Well, I can just go get this on the cloud," because they'll go to IT and IT will say, "Yeah, we'll get to that in six months." And they say, <laughs> "Yeah, no, I'm not going to wait six months." It's not going to work for me. And instead, you know what? I'll go to Amazon or you know whomever, and yeah. I'll have something up in in seconds, and you know I can get working. So you definitely see a lot more technology autonomy within yeah. the lines of business, and that's driven again by you know obviously you know technical technical resources, developers, operators, sysadmins, DBAs in some cases, and so on. So you see a lot more of that, but there really hasn't been a. I don't think there's there's no sort of consistent pattern that was like IT. You know, everybody tends to do it a little differently, but you know, sort of largely, you know, what we've seen is that. Businesses that want to be successful and want to move forward, their IT has to get better, right? You know, the, the days of, hey, I'll get to that in six months, if those aren't gone, they're on their way out because that's just yeah. not an acceptable answer for businesses today. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense because I remember my first couple jobs, I was like, and like I said, I was kind of in that DevOps ring. I had a pager. I yeah. didn't want a pager, oh, yeah. but I had a pager. None of the developers had a pager. Yeah. And I remember I was actually talking to one of our younger developers at Sumo Logic that yeah. I was working with when I was in product management. He he found it really strange that the developer wouldn't have a pager. <laughs> right. that, that's the world he's grown up in. Yeah, and it's really interesting how it's changed because it's it's a it's a it's a cultural change because now he he feels responsibility. Yeah. for his code. Yep. Whereas you know I remember working with developers. It's not like they didn't care, but they felt no responsibility. For no, it. no, for sure. No, and, and that's, you know, that's definitely changed, right? So, you know, I, I come from that same sort of era. So, in other words, you know, I was a developer, you know, for these, for these SIs. I was on call. But in other words, the operator was the one who would make the call, yeah. right? So, in other words, they had run books and, you know, hey, we're going to you know, sort of you know, figure this stuff out. And if something doesn't work in the middle of the night, we end up getting paged. It sucks. I don't want to go back to that. But there was this idea that, hey, I've written this thing. Now it's your problem. Yeah. Right. And that has absolutely changed because we, we talk a lot about sort of DevOps. You know, we talk a lot about these sort of cultural changes. Right. Yeah. And, you know, what DevOps implies, right, just by the, you know, the words itself is a, a conflation, this coming together of developers and operations. Right. Yeah. You have extreme examples like Netflix, for example. Right. Where it's, hey, we have conflicts between our developers and operators. So all the operators are gone. And now the, net, the you know, developers <laughs> right. are out. That's an extreme example. Most yeah. organizations don't take that path. But, you know, basically what you end up finding in most cases is that as these two sort of groups come together, well, guess what? You know, the responsibilities change. Yeah. So if you're if you grew up in the school of like, hey, I'm a developer and I just, you know, sort of write this stuff and then it's somebody else's problem, that's not going to really work in sort of an area where the developers have operational responsibilities as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. 
So, you know, kind of back to the uh, thing we were saying before, you're, you guys basically have an insight that, you know, others wouldn't have. You're kind of an oracle a little bit. You know, you get to see what's coming. What are you watching now that you don't think other people are watching? It's a, it's a great question. I mean, there's so many different things. Honestly, the, one of the things that we, well, frankly, we struggle with to some extent, and businesses definitely struggle with, is just how to make sense of everything. Yeah, yeah. Right? So, in other words, you know, I, I talk about this a lot, but when I was a systems integrator, there was basically one way that everybody built applications, right? You had a you know three-tier architecture. There was a presentation tier, a business tier, business logic tier, right, right. and a data tier. You were probably going to pick from two or three application servers, two or three databases. You know, so there just weren't that many choices to make. And you certainly didn't have to make choices as far as you know the approach, right? Like I said, this was you know kind of an industry standard. These days, there are tons of options, right? Tons of options. So how do you... How do you begin to sort through them? What yeah. makes sense, you know? So that's one of the things that we're trying to sort of understand, right? In terms of, you know, basic questions like, okay, we have, for example, you can go you know, sort of build and wire everything together yourself on top of a cloud, or you can go the complete opposite end of the spectrum and purchase something that is all in one, right? Right? You know, hermetically sealed environment, which you don't have any control over, but you also don't have to try to scale yourself. So... What's the relative performance of these, right? How are they being used? You know, because it's not likely to go back to you know the world we, you know, I came from at least, which was like, hey, there's one approach, but it's also probably not the case that we're going to have a dozen different ways to do things, right? There has to be some consolidation, there has to be some standardization. So, you know, when you take a step back, where do containers fit? Where does functions as a service fit? Where do you use one? Where do you use another? Yeah. And so on. So those are those are just you know there are questions that we're trying to sort of understand better in terms of just what's trending up, what's trending down, and who's using what and why. Yeah, no, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. I, I can tell you, for one, I'm, I'm pretty confused by everything that's going <laughs> on. So There's a lot going on? <laughs> yeah, there really is. And it's, I don't know, it sounds like you've been around as, as long as I have. I mean, it's a lot faster than it used to be. It's funny you say that, because I uh, gave a talk on, what was it, Monday, I guess, and one of the things I was pointing out, this is to a, a bunch of executives, is the, the rate of essentially technical change is accelerating. Mm. So in other words, if you go back and look at things like the Java middleware era to platform as a service to open source platform as a service to containers to uh, serverless, right? Right. The time frame in between those is something like, what is it, 10 years, 6 years, 2 years, 1 year, something like that. So in Crazy. other words, the point is, whatever the actual numbers are, the point is essentially that not only do we have more options, more options are arriving more quickly. Yeah. So, you know, there are a lot of developers actually who are in the who are in the boat of this is too much, right? Yeah. I can't I can't deal with this. You know, I can't cope with this amount of change. Yeah. So That's we try to help with that where we can. Be a developer psychologist. You know. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, Stephen, this has been amazing. I love what you guys do and um, I appreciate you taking the time to sit down with me. Not at all. My pleasure. Thanks everybody again for listening to another episode of Masters of Data. Check us out in your favorite podcast app and rate us and review us so other people can find us. Thanks for listening. Masters of Data is brought to you by Sumo Logic. SumoLogic is a cloud-native machine data analytics platform delivering real-time continuous intelligence as a service to build, run, and secure modern applications. SumoLogic empowers the people who power modern business. For more information, go to sumologic.com. For more on Masters of Data, go to mastersofdata.com and subscribe. And spread the word by rating us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app.